Hi, I'm Andy McDonald, Senior Pastor of Whole Life Church here in Orlando, Florida. We're a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-generational congregation, a faith community committed to our mission to love people into lifelong friendship with God. And we're committed to our vision to be a church without walls, fully engaged in serving the people of our community. Thank you for joining us as we continue Speaking of Grace. When we talked about this series back in worship meeting, the world was at a different place. We were, we were thinking about what we were going to say and how we were going to say it, but the words now and even the thoughts seem shallow at this time. Because of the things that have transpired in this world, we're starting to realize that even some of the thoughts that we had back then were somewhat incomplete. Phrases that we use now, like, I'm exhausted about all these things, or let's get back to normal. Even those phrases mean something different to different people. Richard Hickam sent me a, uh, an email this week, and uh, in the email he was quoting a phrase that the Bible Project had sent out, and the phrase was, let's give it a rest. It was really in the context of pushing the pause button so that uh, you know we could enjoy the rest that Sabbath affords us. But even phrases as simple and as generic and sometimes as familiar as these are cause us to start and pause about how the context or the, the motive behind it. And now even who is saying those phrases. We get distrustful. We start to think a little critically. And sometimes we just become cynical. And the moment somebody says, truce, we even question the motive for that. So it becomes really somewhat exhausting and, and, and hard for people. And I was listening to Linda Agard Ryan when she spoke last week. What a, what a, what a statement she made. She said, you know, it's difficult for me to do even some of the simple things like conversations. She said, I'm tired. I'm tired with living with racism every day. You could, you could almost feel the anguish and the exhaustion in her voice. But then she went on to say, she said, personally, I've found strength in knowing what she calls the transformative love of God. So Linda, thank you. Thank you for your sentiment, but also thank you. I want to use your word today as we explore the power of God's transformative love. You know, it's the one thing that pulls us in and keeps us trusting, even in the midst of hatred and pain. And like Andy mentioned last week, it's also the very thing that keeps us trusting in God's promises, even when the present time feels very hopeless. So as we look at this, we have to realize that transformative love also does something very, very special. It causes us to move to action by taking into account and being aware of those around us. We get a chance to genuinely want to understand, which makes us even more able to stop and pause and give the opportunity of caring intelligently with God's love. 
There's a story that Jesus shares in Luke chapter 10. It's actually a response to a question. A young man that came uh, up to Jesus while Jesus was teaching, and he asked him this question. He said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's not the first time that Jesus had heard that question. So he answers it with another question. He says, how do you interpret the Torah? And the man said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, good job. Now go and and live. And then the man stuck around because he was trying to trip Jesus up. And he says, ah, but how would you define neighbor? And Jesus shares this story. It's a very familiar story to us, but it was also a very familiar story to them. We call it the story of the Good Samaritan. It's a story where a Samaritan is walking down the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, and he finds this Jewish citizen beat up on the side of the road and left for dead. He provides care and finances to heal and and recuperate. But the story is a one that is familiar because it is a story that was circulated uh, quite often in Jesus' time. However, it was a little different. The story actually was, was a, a Jewish priest that was walking down the road who finds in one of the renditions a leper. And another one, he might, it was finding a Roman uh, soldier shipwrecked on the side of the seashore. But each time, the hero of the story was a, was a Jewish leader. Jesus flipped it around, and he made the hero a Samaritan. One of those people from a race that they felt was legitimate in hating. This put Jesus on a path that not only would he be disdained by many of the Jewish leaders, but it put him on a path where he was targeted by them. And they felt really quickly during this time that he needed to be disposed of. We'll come back to that in just a second. But the question you have right now is, why is this transformative love, the love that Jesus is talking about in the life of this Samaritan, why is this so hated Why was it looked on with so much disdain, especially by the Jewish leaders? I'd like to offer a couple of reasons. Number one is a scarcity mindset. We have this idea that when when we look beyond ourselves, that there is a a limit to how much God actually can can love us or someone else. And in a sense, we feel like his grace is way too precious to just hand out to anybody. It's like we're the the grace police, so to speak, letting some have it and some not, as if there was some kind of entitlement to it. All of these limits were placed on by man. They were man-made limits. So we we might have to ask the question, who are the Samaritans today? Who are those that we legitimately feel like we should be able to marginalize them? The second reason is I think that there is also a contradiction in the idea that we are God's body. Because there is, 
there's a problem with transformative love when you actually believe that there are some parts of the body that are more important and valued higher than others. And this has a domino effect, actually. Because then, once we believe that some are more valuable to God, we start to think less of them, and we start to empathize less. We also become less interested in being aware of their needs, and then we start to have these preconceived ideas and notions that make it difficult for us to actually move in and try to to care for them with a, a knowledge and an understanding that would be helpful. So we become inwardly focused and we start to seek to learn more about what is our needs rather than what are others. And all of that becomes short-circuited. But I think there's another reason besides these two. And I think it's subtle. I think it's the reason why when the Jewish leaders heard Jesus take and put this Samaritan into the story, a story that was kind of reserved for them, I think it started to make them feel like this man was shaking up and threatening the status quo. Call it what you will, tradition, cultural mores, whatever you want to call it, the, the bottom line is that status quo can be a huge enemy to transformative love. And when you go down that road, you start to realize that Jesus probably was put to death because of that very reason. He wanted transformative love, but he was threatening the system, the system that had always been in place. I mean, look at the story. We call it the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus planted in there the Samaritan in the place of the, the, the priests, but it didn't really change the way they thought about Samaritans. Just because he wanted to help them see a different, different way about thinking and, and a different way about responding didn't change their culture, at least at that point. And even us today, we still call the story the story of the good Samaritan, as if there were only one that uh, we find as an exception to the rule about Samaritans. So, I think sometimes this helps us to, to understand that even in our own way, we, our minds go very quickly to a resistance to something that would change status quo. In the, in the middle of the 19th century, the abolitionists were working really hard to end slavery. They were trying different ideas and trying to figure out a plan that would work. And one of the ideas that they had that sounded good was that they would take cash and go down and actually buy slaves from the auctions and then set them free. It seemed like a really good plan, and it got a lot of support, and so they did. They went down, bought the slaves, set them free, and many of those slaves found their freedom. But it kind of backfired. Unfortunately, one of the things that happened was that money started to pour into the slavery system. And with the demand getting greater because of them buying them, now they were able to go back, bring more slaves in, and the entire institution of slavery actually got stronger during that time. 
You can imagine the disappointment of the abolitionists. However, even worse, the despair of each of the slaves who were left down in that system that not only was not affected by this plan, but actually made slavery stronger. We want to believe that God's love works in a neatly formed system. When all the pieces are in place and all the levers get pulled at the same time, that results will be positive and good will take place. However, it's a bit messier than that and more uncertain. You see, when it's running well and there's great power behind it, status quo can be one of the most insurmountable blocks to transformative love. I've had the opportunity recently to uh, go through some of my dad's collections. It's actually been kind of fun. Uh, He collected quite a few things. He collected cards, baseball cards, football cards. He also collected miniature replica cars, and he collected stamps and coins. His favorite, though, was the coins. And I would go through different cases and so forth, and I can still remember him sitting at the dining room table with uh, his little magnifying glass and looking at each coin and putting them in neatly stacked uh, rows of coins. He would take the coin and write down the date and the, the, the grade of the coin and, and how, you know, how the value might be uh, associated with that. And all those little lists he had stored with all of his coins. So I went through those lists. It was kind of fun. And I came across what I remember him thinking about and talking about and and even mentioning to some of his friends and fellow collectors. I remember thinking about his Mercury Dime collection. It was sort of the one that he talked about most. So as I started to read a little bit more about Mercury Dimes... I started to find some interesting information. I found out that there is one particular mercury dime that is sought after more than any of the other coins. It's the 1916D. Now, collectors will tell you that when you bring in a collection of mercury dimes, if you have that coin, that is the one identifying coin that values the collection. In other words, they look to see if that coin is present. And if it's not, it brings the value of the coins down incredibly low. It's valued based on that one coin, the 1916D. So I went through all the lists. I went into the cases and I went through all of the things, seeing if I could find his Mercury collection. And there it was. There was his book his favorite book, and I still re- I remember him opening this and talking with great pride about this. And so I quickly turned the pages as fast as I could to the front page to see if that coin was there. And there it was. All the coins were there, except the one space left open for the 1916D. Now, I wasn't surprised, really, that it was missing. My mom and dad were quite frugal. As a matter of fact, I would have actually been probably more surprised if it was there because having a coin of that extravagant value would have been just a little too much for somebody who just had a hobby. So I didn't think a whole lot about it. 
And I continued on through the lists, 1990s, 1980s, and on down, each list becoming a little less readable because the, the pencil became faded. And there I found it. On one of the lists with a little paper clip on the top, there it said, Mercury Dimes, 1916, and right below that, there it was, 1916D. It actually was part of his collection. And I thought, whoa, my dad actually did have a complete uh, uh, collection of Mercury Dimes. I was kind of excited, actually. But behind the paper was this paper clip at the top, and there was a little note said, that said, sold, 1916D, to Norman Mattei. That was it. No reason why, no understanding as why who this Norman was or why he was so privileged to get my dad's best coin. I, I thought, well, maybe I should contact this guy. Maybe I, I, maybe I should just look him up. And so I tried to find him to find out if he had a better understanding or at least a little bit of a completion to this story about why my dad would sell him his best coin. But to no avail. I couldn't find him. I couldn't find him anywhere, actually. Now, I wasn't angry with my dad, but I was just disappointed that one random day my dad would just up and sell off this coin that was so important to this collection. Why would he do that? Why would he not have the forward thinking that this would be a family heirloom, that this collection would be treasured by all of the descendants that came later? Why wouldn't he think about that? I mean, certainly anything that he would have gotten for it that, at that time wouldn't have come close to the, the treasure of having a complete system of coins or collection of coins. I finally let it go. I, I put it down and I thought about it for a couple days. And then I realized maybe I shouldn't be trying to find Norman. Maybe I should be looking for the time that this transaction took place. And so I started to narrow it down by by looking at different lists when the coin was there and when it wasn't. And then I realized why my dad had sold his 1916D. You see, the very time that he sold it coincided with the exact time that my mom and dad were discussing, trying to figure out a way in which they were going to be able to pay for my school tuition of all things. And then I felt like a real heel. <laughs> I started to realize at that time that it wasn't my dad that was, was not forward thinking. It was me that didn't have a full picture. I didn't have a whole understanding of what was really at stake. How my dad was willing to sell off his most treasured part of his collections so that I could have an education. The interesting thing is my dad never told me about that story. He never shared it with me. And I can kind of understand why. You see, I grew up in a family where I knew that I was loved. And I was certain that I belonged. 
I think this is the reason why God was so willing to give up the best that heaven had to offer. How he was able to break up the perfect union, the perfect relationship, and send his son all the way down to this messy earth and reach down as far as it took for us to truly understand what transformative love actually means. Taking on humanity and getting as low as humanity would take him, even to the point of death. That's because God had that transformative love and he wanted us to understand it as well. I don't believe that God did all of this so that he could show us how much he loved us. Or I don't believe that he did it so that he could hopefully impress us that we would eventually choose him. No, I think that the reason God did this was so that he could help us understand without a shadow of a doubt that we belonged. And our belonging is the step that will take us to this transformative love. When we realize that we are his children, part of his family, and not just we, that we is all of us. When we all know that we belong, that brings transformative love and makes it possible. So I'd like to just leave with a, with a text. It's found in Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. It says, Christ will live in you as you open the door and invite him in. And I ask you, this is Paul speaking, and I ask him with both feet planted firmly on love, you'll be able to take in with all the followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breadth, test its lengths, plumb the depths, rise to the heights, live full lives, full in the fullness of God. So what does this mean? What about you and I and this broken world that we live in? How does God's transformative love work in this context? Well, I believe that God's transformative love eventually will work. Why? Well, first of all, because it's God. But second of all, I believe that it's possible that if we, one by one, start living in the belief that we truly do belong, we all belong, not just the elect, the ones that think that they do. No, all of us are included in that. If we all believe that we belong, it's this one essential paradigm shift that our hearts can be opened to new ways of thinking and then new ways of responding. I hope that this series provided you with a few things that you can take with you. The important things. We said, what really matters in this series? And what could actually matter more than faith, hope, and love? And we hope that this will be a little bit of an inspiration for you to not only change your thoughts and hearts, but change the way you live. Next week, we're going to be uh, starting a new series. It's actually our summer series where we get a chance to listen to the thoughts and the hearts of some of our members. So it's called 
This is Whole Life. And uh, we'll be interviewing a few of our members next week. So we welcome you to come back. Same station, same channel. We, uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. Let me close with a word of prayer. Father, we now realize that you do not look at us the same as we most of the time look at ourselves. And you don't look at those around us the same way that sometimes we do. So I pray that you would not only help us to see through your eyes, but you'd also to help us to respond as we learn and as we grow with each other. This we pray in your most holy name. Amen. We're all anxious to get back to community, and we look forward to the time when uh, some of these soft starts will turn into real starts. But until then, one of the things that this time and this, this break, so to speak, in our lives have, has afforded us is that we now have in place a, a bit of an organ, organized uh, plan to get small groups going. We're going to be calling our small groups life groups. And right now, leaders are being trained so that that can happen. So we'd like to ask you, if you have an interest in being a part of life groups at Whole Life Church, please contact the church and we'll put you in as a pool of those people who would like to be part of what is going on. Right now it's just online, but eventually we're hoping that those will turn into home groups or location groups. Either way, we're looking forward to having even more community after our church gets moving into the, the back to the building. If you would like to support this, this is one of the many ministries that our church does. And as you know, as these ministries form and get, uh, get taken in, uh, to put into plans and then into action, they do cost money. And so if you would like to support this or any of the ministries in our church, we would really encourage you to move to the online button there or try to figure out a way in which you can help support the ministries of Whole Life Church. We really are grateful that you are a part of our family and we are anxious to get back together. Hi, this is Randy McGray, podcast producer and host here at Whole Life Church. Loving people into a lifelong friendship with God is our mission at the Whole Life Church and our podcasts, Speaking of Grace and its companion, 15 with Andy, Randy, and Jeff, are designed to help facilitate conversations that help us grow together in that pursuit. Now that you've heard the message for this week, don't forget to check out the Whole Life Takeaways for this message. Swipe up in today's show notes and join the conversation. Speaking of conversations, each Wednesday morning we take a closer look at the week's message. That's right, the one you just listened to. We discuss practical ways to apply spiritual lessons and ask honest questions about the issues we face as Christians, all focused through the lens of grace. Your voice is a welcomed addition to that conversation. We encourage your thoughts and your questions by sending a voicemail or text to 407-965-1607 or send an email to podcast at wholelife.church. You can find everything podcast-related on our website, wholelife.church podcast. 
and plan on spending every Tuesday evening and Wednesday morning with us as we bring you the Whole Life Church inspiration you love straight into your headphones. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.